It's my privilege to bring tonight's Bible reading to you. And as we have been encouraging you each week uh, to bring your Bibles, I'm looking forward to hearing all the pages turn as I ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, And for those of you who are at home, please open uh, the Word of God with us now. I'm going to be reading from verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, Thanks, Mel. Appreciate uh, the reading of the word. Friends, uh, last week uh, we were looking at authentic church, a life that is holy, and we dealt with the area of sexual purity because that was one of the issues that Paul needed to address in that church in that first century. But then there was another matter that we deal with today. It's almost like major topics that they had to deal with. And this one has to deal with death. What happens in death? What happens to those who've died, family members, friends, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where are they? What happens to them? Are they safe? Are they lost? Will they have eternal life? That seemed to be a problem for the church in Thessalonica that Paul now addresses. But I want to remind you that right from the beginning, that one of the great hopes of the Christian is that there is eternal life, that what is to come is better than what you're experiencing now, far better, and that we ought to live in light of eternity. And uh, let me give you an example of uh, how the gospel transforms and gives hope to people. I'm going to take you back a couple of hundred years ago to 1738 uh, to a man called Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley uh, had been converted only for a couple of months now, so moved by God and the Holy Spirit that he wanted to make a difference in the lives of others. So he asked if he could witness to the prisoners in a prison called Newgate. He took a friend with him called Bray, and together they shared the gospel. He said there was a black fellow there who had robbed his master, and he was in prison. He was sick with a fever. He was condemned to die. And as they shared the gospel, they then said to the prison authorities, can we stay in overnight? These guys will be executed in the morning. Can we please stay with them to tell them about Jesus? And they were given permission to do so, and so all night they spoke the gospel to these men. They told them that one had come down from heaven to save lost sinners just like them. They described the sufferings of the Son of God, his sorrows, his agony, and ultimately his death. The men were then loaded onto the cart the next morning, taken to the place of execution. Charles went with them. He said ropes were fastened around their necks so that the cart could be driven off and that would leave them swinging in the air to choke to death. This is their form of execution. The fruit of Wesley's embrace night-long labor was astonishing, and this is what Wesley writes following their deaths. They were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, and triumph, assuredly persuaded Christ had died for them, 
and waited to receive them into paradise. The black, well, he saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the car drove off, no one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. Converted with a heart to reach the lost just before their execution and seeing God do a marvelous thing which enabled these men to go to their deaths with confidence that there was something else. A bit like the thief on the cross, isn't it? Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Final moment, opportunity to be right with God, and they took it. Uh, John Dixon and Greg Clark in their book 666 and all that contrast the modern myth about uh, death and life after death with a biblical doctrine. Now it says the modern myth goes like this. When Christians die, their bodies decay once for all, while their spirits go eternally to God's presence in heaven. And it stops there. He says that's not enough. That's not the biblical doctrine. The biblical doctrine is this. When Christians die, they rest temporarily in God's presence in heaven until they are bodily raised to life to enjoy forever God's new creation. So it's not that when you die, your spirit goes to be with Jesus, but you are still awaiting the coming again of Jesus when you will be raised to life, as the Bible says. You'll receive a new resurrection body that will be like Jesus' transformed body. And you will live forever in a new, new world. The Bible says new heavens and a new earth. We'll come to that at the end, where you live in perfect harmony with God. Now, the Thessalonians had misunderstood something. They thought Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. It's been a couple of thousand years, right? And whenever someone, you hear someone say, a prophet, well, I think I read the prophecies and I reckon Jesus is coming soon. In the next 10 years, just smile at them. And say, thank you for your advice and your wisdom from the scriptures. We'll just trust that he will come like a thief in the night, the Bible says. We don't know when he'll come. But these guys thought he was coming in the first century. And uh, because they thought he was coming in the first century, some of them gave up their jobs. And they thought, well, no, no use working, no use earning money because Jesus is coming back. We're going to heaven. Which led to problems. And we see that later. There was laziness and people weren't working and so on. But further, they were worried. Because some of them had lost maybe a, a wife or a, or a husband or a son or a daughter or a mother or father. And because Jesus hadn't come back and they had died, they thought that somehow they were going to miss out on heaven. They were going to miss out on the blessings to come. So Paul writes this section to get some of this straight for them. The first thing we notice is that gr Christians grieve with hope. We grieve, but with hope. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death or so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Well, friends, the first thing I need to remind you of today is that it's right and normal to grieve. I've been preaching this all day, different congregations. Every congregation, there are people there who've lost loved ones. Maybe a mother or father. I lost my mother four years ago. Others have lost children. Others have lost brothers or sisters. And I'll make a reference to one in a moment. And so there, therefore, this becomes 
quite hard and emotional for some of you, even sitting there or watching uh, on the live stream. Someone who you love dearly is no longer with you. They're not there to go out and have a coffee with. They're not there to go and play golf with. They're not there just to spend time with them. They, they are not with you. And there's, it's devastating. You feel their loss and you grieve. See, Paul doesn't say don't grieve. He says we don't grieve without hope. But I want to say to you, it's right and normal to grieve. One uh, Christian leader put it this way, the struggle is to bring our faith and our emotions together. We know that there is something better. We know that they're in a better place. We know that they are with Christ, but we feel their loss. And this fellow had lost a 21-year-old son. But I love the fact that Jesus, when he was at the uh, graveside of his beloved friend Lazarus, he stopped and he wept. Because friends, I say death is a terrible bully. Death takes things from us. And Christ came to overcome death and to bring forgiveness and salvation. But what Paul prohibits is not grief, but hopeless grief. Not all mourning, but mourning like the rest of mankind who have no hope, like the pagans of that day. I don't know, when you attended your first funeral, I attended my first one when I was 15. I was in year 9 or year 10. It was my grandmother's. She was 72. And uh, in our family, we visited the funeral parlour every night for the viewing of the body. Not just once, like it seemed to be like all week. Three or four nights, we'd go, where are we going? We're going to go and see the body. We'd go and pray at the body. And day after day, we just went. Everyone was in black. Everyone wears black in the Greek culture. Someone dies. Don't turn up to a funeral in white, please, or colourful clothes if you go to a Greek Orthodox funeral. You will stand out. Wear black. Get your best black clothes and take them with you. But you said, we'd go in our best black clothes. And, uh, and I remember the service. And uh, my mother and uh, her sisters were down the front. And they were weeping and they were wailing throughout the whole service. You could hear them. And you see, in, in our uh, Greek service there, we also have an open casket. It's not, it was bad enough that we had to see grandma every day passed away. Then we, at the funeral service, there's none of this hiding that. It's like you walk past and you do your final goodbye and you see her laying there. No wonder there's crying and there's wailing and there's weeping everywhere. But as they, we finished all of that, although the priest may have been speaking about eternal life, all I heard was crying and weeping and wailing. It seemed like a hopeless event. In fact, most of my family are not uh, Christians. They're, they're not even good Greek Orthodox, right? They're really unbelievers, and so there was little hope of life beyond death. But secondly, non-Christians grieve without hope. And I have attended the funeral of unbelievers. Maybe you have as well. Remember, you ever had that experience? People are talking all these nice things. They will remain in our memories. Isn't it great? They were such a great person, such a good colleague, and, and so good at this or so bad at this. And, and we laugh and we tell the stories and they remain with us in our memories, they tell you. And you walk outside with your Christian friends and you just think, thank God for the gospel. Thank God that there's more than just memories. Thank God there is eternity to come. But there's also a false hope with non-Christians. You know, he was a good man. The man upstairs will look after him. Ever heard that? Even though they don't believe in God, they hope, they hope beyond hope, that there may be something. And if there is a God by chance, he'll be good to them because of their good works. 
Well, friends, the Bible says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Christians don't boast because of their works. Non-Christians don't have a hope of boasting because of their works because they don't trust in Jesus. There's another sense in which the non-Christian world is hopeless. For once death occurs, the eternal destiny of the individual is sealed. There are no second chances beyond death. It is our response to Jesus while we're alive that determines our eternal destiny. In John chapter 3, verse 36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a present possession that continues into eternity. But whoever rejects the Son, doesn't believe in Him, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. When you die unforgiven, you remain unforgiven under the judgment of God. That's why evangelism and mission and Matt pride that wherever we go, we might have an influence for good by taking the gospel to others. God's word said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you've received that gift, be thankful for what God has given you. Thirdly, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Verse 14. Christ dies for our sins, for our rebellion, our selfishness, our arrogance, and our ignorance. 1 Peter 3, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The very purpose of Jesus that we've been singing about tonight, we will sing again, was to reconcile us to God through his death and resurrection. Not only did he die, he rose again. He beat death, that big bully. He rules the world. And he will come back to take his people home to judge the world. And I say to you, whether you're watching on live stream or gathered here today, maybe someone invited you. If you are not ready for eternity, get ready. You have no guarantee how long you have to live. Don't assume everyone's going to live a long life. On Friday, I went to a funeral. The man's name was Adam. He was 45. His mother is a Christian. His sister is a Christian. I've known them because the mother and sister have come to this church over many years, not with us at the moment, they're at some other churches, but that we've been praying for them. They've been sharing prayer needs about praying for Adam, an alcoholic, addicted, his body a wreck because of alcohol abuse, depression, suicidal tendencies and other things, abusive towards his wife and two children, and uh, his wife has been in a refuge right here in Australia. But his mother got up to speak and said, last December, Adam came over to her house, and I think she said with the Bible, and said, Mum, I get it. It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus who saves us. It's Jesus who died for us. Jesus is the hope. And at that point, he repented of his sins, placed his faith in Jesus, And his mother said, I've been praying for this for a long time, but I I can see, it sends to me a genuine conversion, a genuine turning from sin. Like those men ready to be executed uh, with Charles Wesley 200 years ago, like the thief on the cross, Jesus will remember me admitting your sin at the final moment. Here he was, near the end of his life, recognizing that it's all Jesus. And so what was a very difficult service on Friday had a glimmer of hope. The hope that there is life beyond death because now Adam is no longer addicted. Adam is no longer have a body which is corrupted. Adam is no longer someone who abuses others. 
Adam is made right with God and is experiencing God's blessing. Fourthly, the return of Christ fulfills our hope. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, there's two groups of people, right? Those who are still alive. Imagine if Jesus came tonight, right? We would be those who are still alive. And uh, if he came tonight, um, the dead ones would come up first, right? In other words, metaphorically, they, they raised from the gravesite with new bodies, connected with their spirits that are with God. And they're raised first. And then us, and it says that uh, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, he says to to his people, don't worry about your loved ones who've died believing Jesus. They're coming first. They get a new resurrection body first, even before you guys. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The dead in Christ are raised with new resurrection bodies. Those who are still alive are now transformed. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. It's a reference to the second coming. Lord forever with a new body. Perfected. Now we live in a, in a society, we're worried about our body image. We exercise, we train, we go to the gym, we watch what we eat. I always eat too many cakes. <laughs> And then I have to walk more and exercise more. We worry about how we look or uh, the size of our ears, our nose, our hair and our complexion. One day we're going to be with Christ, perfected. That's what we're looking forward to. And then there's another question people put to me. We call it the intermediate state. Between death and resurrection, what is, what's really happening to our spirits? Or our body? We know our body is done away with. It's either buried or burnt up. If it's buried, it'll disintegrate in time. What really happens? Where do you go? Now, if you've been to any of the funerals I've taken, there are certain things I say at a funeral which uh, explain what I believe about what happens. You need to be aware, though, that there are some who believe that you remain asleep after you die until the second coming of Jesus. Some theologians and Bible teachers teach that those who die in faith, with faith in Christ sleep unconscious in the protective care of God until the day of resurrection. That's like, if that's the reality, that's okay too. You die, next thing you know, you're with Jesus, right? But I'm not sure the Bible teaches that. They get that from uh, uh, the language of being asleep, right? I listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. And then in the passage we've just read, they've fallen asleep, fallen asleep, fallen asleep. Because what they're saying though, and they, they say because of that, what happens? You die, you don't know anything until the resurrection. But they fail to appreciate that falling asleep is a euphemism for dying. It's another way of saying you're dead. Sometimes we'll say so-and-so has passed away. Or we use some other expressions and are not as nice as that. Most Christian theologians and churches teach that between the death, between your death and the day of resurrection, believers are consciously at rest as spirits in the presence of God in heaven. And you're alert, you're alive, you know things, you experience things. We call it the doctrine of the intermediate state. I want to take a few moments now to give you some passages uh, to help you understand that why we hold to that in most Christian churches. 
Number one, let me take you to the thief on the cross with Jesus. You remember him? Luke chapter 23. Jesus said, remember me when, or the fellow says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be asleep till the resurrection. No, right? Now he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, we know, from two other instances in the New Testament, is a reference to heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4, Paul was caught up into paradise in a vision. It is parallel to the third heaven, he describes that. With God, Revelation 2.7, the tree of life is in the paradise of God, either heaven or the new creation where God dwells with his people. So when you talk about going to paradise, it's another way of saying you're going to heaven. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not asleep, not unconscious, you're with me. I think it's important to realize there's a relationship here. God wants us to be with him where he is. Secondly, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, 21 to 23, he says that death is preferable to life because it means being with Jesus. For, for me, uh, sorry, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul has a choice. He said, I can stay on the earth and keep doing ministry, seeing more people saved, have an impact uh, for Christ, or I go to be with Jesus. Not to go to be asleep, not to be unconscious, but to go to be with Jesus. The language is about relationship in the presence of Christ. Thirdly, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Uses the expression, at home with the Lord. Therefore, we are always confident to know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In other words, if you are in this body like we are now, I'm in this body and I am away from the Lord. In other words, I'm not in the presence of the Lord. I can't see him. It says we live by faith, not by sight. And you are living by faith that there is a God who loves you, that Jesus who died and rose again, and, and you're hoping one day to see him, but you don't see him now physically. You live by faith, he says. We are confident, and I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. One day, he'll be with the Lord and he'll be with him. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's why I think it's significant that we, uh, we see that we are with Christ, we are alert, we are in paradise, we are with him, we're not simply asleep. Let me take you to another passage, though, in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to look at the whole passage here. It's a, I call it a parable. Many scholars think it's a parable. Others think it's a true story. Whatever the case, Jesus is making significant points here. You know the story, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. There's a rich man, there is a very poor man. At time, the beggar died, the poor guy dies, and the angels, because obviously if he was poor, often the poor people trusted in God because they had no one else to trust him. The implication is he's trusted in God, he's carried to Abraham's side. Where in the world's Abraham, do you think? He's in heaven, right? He goes to Abraham's side. But uh, in the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So here's the picture. There's this rich guy now who is in torment, a place called Hades. So he, keep this in mind. Immediately after death, your spirit is in the future when Christ comes. So he called him, Father Abraham, 
have pity on me and Lazarus to dip to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And they're separated, so please send him. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. There's a separation that is forever. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, please. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, or said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus there is anticipating the rejection by the religious leaders and the Pharisees following his resurrection. But what makes he makes clear, Jesus makes clear here, there is no crossing over from one side to the other. One is in judgment already, and one is experiencing the blessings of God already. And Daryl Bock in his commentary writes, This unity is a parable, but that does not mean that it should be read as mere poetry. It depicts a tragic and serious reality. The coming judgment is permanent for those rejected by God. Eternal torment is in store for those who do not know that God exists or know that God exists but fail to respond to him in this afterlife. And there's another passage I'd like to take you to. Do you know the story of the transfiguration? You see it in all, each of the Gospels where Jesus is up on a mountain and he is transformed into shining, bright, brilliant person. He's transfigured in other words, it's glory right there and the two people turn up do you remember who those two people were Moses and Elijah guess what they weren't doing sleeping they were not sleeping somewhere awaiting the final day they were in heaven they've now come to meet Jesus they're very much alive and awake in relationship with Jesus. I just think something like that, it just makes it so clear. It's not just asleep. My friends, not only are we conscious beyond our deaths in the presence of God, experiencing the blessings of God at home with the Lord, which is better by far, but we await the final day. We await when Christ returns. And when he does return and there's the trumpet sounds and all that type of thing we read about, all those who have ever died in Christ before will receive their resurrection bodies and come together with their spirit to be with Christ. And whoever's left and is still alive at that point will also be, have a transformed body. And Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. And this is a reference to the church, the holy city coming out of the New Jerusalem is the bride, it's just the church dressed for her husband, which is Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, for the old order of things has passed away. No wonder, Paul says at the end of what he writes, Therefore, Thessalonians, not only did I go to a funeral on Friday, I also went to, the, to a cemetery on Saturday. 
See how things roll with me. <laughs> Every two weeks, I take my father to the cemetery. And um, we have a routine. We go and uh, we put new flowers. And then he, he cleans it, washes it all back. And I said to him, Dad, it's going to be dusty in five minutes. No, we must wash it all back. So it's good for Mum. Mum died almost four years ago now. And they put some new oil and you light it up and there's a candle. And then we go for coffee and cake. But before that, this time, I, I said, Dad, let's have a look at how old all the people were who died. Look at the other uh, places. Someone who died at uh, 64 or, Dad, 72 or 73 or 14 or 15. There's a young there, not far from where my mother is buried. Died in an accident overseas. Overseas on a holiday to Greece. That was the story. All the Greeks talk. That's how I get the story. And he fell off a balcony and died. Brought him back to Australia and buried a, I think, 12-year-old. And we look at all those different ages and, and Dad said, well, I'm older than all of them, aren't I? I said, you are, Dad. And one day, you, one day your time will come too. Mum made it to 84. You're 87 and a half. And you need to be ready for eternity. Now, Paul writes to Thessalonians to give them confidence and comfort that if you're in Christ, you are safe for eternity. We have a living hope. I want to invite the musicians to come forward. We're going to sing about that beautiful living hope, all made possible through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we can face life and death with confidence and with hope. And to God be the glory.